crux of the episode, episode 56, Preaching Better. Hello and welcome to the crux of the matter, the show by pastors, for pastors. This is Pastor Todd Peppercorn. And this is Professor Scott Stigmeyer. Hey, Scott, how are you? Hey, it's a glorious day in Orange County. Glorious day in Orange County. We had the uh, choir from Crean Lutheran High School in Irvine, Orange County, uh, yeah. sing uh, sing for church yesterday or uh, last Sunday, and it was an absolute blast. Um, really great choir, about about uh, thirty, maybe thirty five kids, something like that. And uh, they were on tour. It was just kind of a fluke that they ended up uh, going to church with us, and I sort of made them sing for their supper, if you will. But yeah. uh, it was really fun. And uh, the choir director, uh, his name is uh, Paul von Campen. Uh, the choir director uh, went to Seward, where, where Catherine, Catherine and I went, and was the um, student director of the acapella choir, which is the choir Catherine and I were in. And Catherine's children's choir was also singing, so I suggested in the announcements that these two choirs were essentially choral cousins, since uh, since they sort of did the same thing. So because you know, I'm just hilarious that way. Scott. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the Crean Lutheran High School is only about five minutes from where I live currently. Is that right? I never yeah. did hear what is Crean. What what um, is the name um, for that? Do you have it, any idea? I think it's the, it's the name of their um, what shall I say? Great benefactor. Okay. Gotcha. So it's the sugar daddy. I mean, yeah. maybe that's not the, not the right term, but okay. No, but 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 some, gotcha. some very generous Lutheran family um, donated a large sum to get the school started, and I I believe uh, you know I I believe that that is the origin of the name that it was the family name. All right. Well, that makes sense. Anyway, yeah. that's uh, yeah. if you ever have an excuse to uh, go hear a concert that they perform or something, I would highly recommend it. They did a nice job. Well, and they are they're a large Lutheran high school and they are they say they are the fastest growing Lutheran high school. But uh, would not surprise me. A lot of people yeah. in, in uh, Orange County, I hear. Although, mm-hmm. to be fair, I haven't spent a lot of time there, but uh, that's OK. That's OK. So what you've been teaching this week, you're kind of uh, wrapping up, I would expect. Yeah, this week was a little different because next week is final. So I spent some time doing some review. But the last doctrine that we covered, of course, was eschatology. We talked about should. Yeah, you know, logically. We, and we talked about the end times and, and I taught about what death is and after the afterlife and taught a little bit about premillennialism versus – the other theories like amillennialism and postmillennialism did a little bit of that. And, um, you know, it's surprising to me how still how many people have the notion that when you die, uh, your eternity is spent disembodied. Right. You know, that you just or they, or they they they've never put two and two together. Oh, yeah, I know. I believe in the resurrection of the dead. Oh, that means I'm going to live forever in a bodily <laughs> right. form. Yeah, you know they've never put those two things together. I mean, a lot, at least some of the students, you know, were kind of surprised by that. Yeah, no, I uh, I totally agree. Or that you, uh, I mean, I find it pretty common the belief that uh, when you die, you either become an angel, or uh, reincarnation is way more common uh, here and now than it was twenty years ago. That's for sure. Well, I certainly get a lot of students who confuse the word reincarnation with incarnation. Hmm. Right. And I, right. so, so like on one of my, one of my recent exam questions was a true false. 
incarnation is the belief that your soul comes back in another bodily form after you die. Right. And, and everybody got it wrong. <laughs> even after lecturing on it, right. Even after lecturing on it, a surprising number of students got that wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Well, obviously so, the words so, are, uh, the words are, are intimately connected. So the, they are, but, but I think more people, a lot of, this is a generalization, but I think a lot of people know what reincarnation is, but they never really thought about what incarnation means in Christian theology. Right. Uh, it's sort of like, um, uh, the phrase "I could care less" versus "I couldn't care less." <laughs> right, you know, right, sure. They mean the opposite so, things. Right, right. They uh, they mean the opposite things, but they're used sort of interchangeably. <laughs> yes, very true. Very true. Yeah, yeah very peculiar. What, what have you been teaching? Well, I have been wrestling with uh, wrestling with Paul again this week, and particularly wrestling with Ephesians chapter four. You know, we're doing Ephesians in our Sunday Bible class, and this is the, uh, you know, and he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And then you get, you know, Ephesians 4.11 for the uh, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and so on. And so I took a first pass last Sunday at, at trying to explain that, and um I don't know. In my mind, failed miserably. <laughs> I'm not sure. We'll see. So I'm going to take another pass at that. Um, but, the, you know, not too surprisingly, one of the big challenges, I think, with reading, well, honestly, with reading the Bible, not not just with Paul's epistles, although certainly this is the case with Paul's epistles, is that very often um, the presumption is that Excuse me. The presumption is that everything applies to everyone. Yeah, right. Uh, you know, so for the building, for the uh, equipping, equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the for the building up of the body of Christ, and kind of goes on and is like, mm-hmm. okay, so so now how do I equip the saints? Mm-hmm. Well, do I, as a butcher, baker, candlestick maker, equip the saints? Or do works of service? I mean, obviously, there's a whole exegetical question on that, too, which I'm trying to wrestle right. to the ground. But right, right. For I the works in, of service, or does that imply right. – does that mean everyone has a ministry? Right. Is it is it one phrase, equipping of the saints for work of ministry, or is it – Equipping the saints, comma, comma, for the work of for the works works of service or work of the ministry, it's a uh, and that is in itself a, a, a tricky. Uh, it's a tricky one, mm-hmm. and and that certainly you know we just went through First Timothy. I think that applies there. Yeah, I think that uh, you know how what of these things is speaking directly to a certain vocation, and what has and and in what way does it have more more general application. I don't know. As a pastor, I uh, I wrestle with that in teaching the scriptures often in that, um, you know, in sort of waxing homiletic, there is always a uh, there is always a temptation or a desire to uh, to tr- sort of apply everything to everyone. And mm-hmm. it doesn't work that way. At least. Yeah, I don't it's think not so. uh, no, it's you have to understand the context and who was the author addressing. Right. And in what sense can can something be written in the Bible for someone else and still be edifying to me? Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. You know, I, I think of um, I am highly edified by a medical textbook that a surgeon 
reads before performing surgery on you. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh-huh. Even though but you're not is, reading the book. But I'm not reading the book. Mm-hmm. It, so it is not for me, but I benefit from from it. I, I don't know. There's yeah, that's, that's what good. I've been wrestling with. So so okay. it goes. Anyway, we should probably uh probably move on. Um our, our suggested topic for this morning is a, a book that I that I recommended a I don't know a month or two ago maybe I'm not sure yeah, yeah um, probably right. six weeks ago uh, called Preaching Better Practical Suggestions for Homilists by Ken Untener and uh, and Ken Untener is a uh, is the bishop of Saginaw Michigan um, or at least he was as of the publishing of this book. It's Roman and, Catholic bishop, right? Roman Catholic bishop. Thank you. And uh, and this is a and this is a book that I think I would argue is one of the most um, practical and sort of practice oriented books on preaching that I have read. And uh, so this was uh, so this is your suggestion. Do you have any kind of initial? Initial thoughts on this? I've read it, and I presume that you've either read it or read read good portions of it at this point. No, I read it. I um, you recommended it to me because it was something that you had discovered on your on as you were contemplating your demon in, in homiletics. Right. I think yep. you found it on a reading list or suggested list or something. Yep. And um, and since it's a short book, um, and I like short books because yep. I. I have ADD, and so I like books that I can read quickly. Right, and right. Um, get to the no, point. I, yeah, yeah. I I agree with you. I think that you know, while there are certain Roman Catholic idiosyncrasies or certain you know specific things about it that um, I you know we don't we wouldn't take to heart, but I think that he has a lot of really practical suggestions about, as the title of the book says, preaching better. And even though I'm not on a, in a role now where I preach every week, I still preach occasionally. I preach, I'm preaching tomorrow and, and so, uh, you know, still wanting to hone my skills. So I thought this might be fun, especially coming off of first Timothy, um, you know, for us to still kind of talk about pastoral theology in a way. Do, do you want to describe, or can you describe the method that he used to, to kind of, that he uses in his diocese to try to help the priests preach better homilies? Yeah, I, and I think to to really start this off, the the first thing that just absolutely kind of grabbed me and shook me up in this book is that the presumption is is that this is a skill that needs to be practiced and worked on. Yeah, and while I hope that's obvious, in my ex, ex, both my own personal experience and in my observation. Many, if not most, pastors do not think of preaching as something that that they try to improve or even, or even work on. You kind of get into a um, you get into a groove of what you do. You develop these preaching habits early on in your ministry, and then they and then I think that the the sort of presumption is is that you're just going to kind of keep doing that until you're done, basically. Well, well, and I think that, uh, you know, at least in our circles, a lot of people are so we're kind of we're kind of conditioned against methods 
and right. techniques in ministry. And, and, and rightly so. There's certainly good reason for not seeing our ministry and the acts of ministry in terms of methods and techniques. But at the same time, you know, it, there is more to preaching a sermon than simply having good content. Obviously, that's foremost. There's right. no point no point in being a great speaker if you have bad bad content, false doctrine, or you blend law and gospel or whatever. Right. But I think that a lot of our peers think those two things. One is that, you know, it's all about just having orthodox teaching. And I'm suspicious of anybody that talks to me about anything that sounds like improving methods or techniques or because it's we think it's manipulative and we think that it's human centered and taking away from the Holy spirits. And right. obviously there are examples where that can happen too, but I don't think this book does that. Yeah, no, I, I think so too. But I, I also think that it, it just sort of starts right off the bat at, at trying to dispel that myth. And, and I don't know if we as Lutherans are more susceptible to that or not. I honestly, I'm just not, I, I don't have enough experience um, with other church bodies to be able to answer that intelligently. But I think that we, as as very word-oriented, very theological, doctrinally focused people, tend to focus on, on that to the complete exclusion of the actual practice of whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And sure. that's true of preaching. That's also true of individual pastoral care, visitation, uh, teaching. You know, all of these things um, that that we um, that we kind of work with a presumption that when I went to seminary, I learned everything that I will ever need to know as a pastor, and whatever else there is is just going to be kind of um, you know, it's just going to come as it does. But to actually intentionally try and work on something is somehow a failure. I don't know. It, it, it well, bugs me. It really yeah, does, it, Scott. Yeah, me too. I think the one exception to that in, in terms of pastoral care or pastoral practice is liturgy. Amongst confessional Lutherans, we seem to not have a problem with both having the correct theology of, of worship and paying attention to the rubrics. Yeah. Learning how to do it. Yeah. You know, and I even mean, a desire to some degree to improve it. Right. Both right. your own personal practice and the practice of the congregation. Because we understand that the rubrics serve the proclamation through the liturgy, you know, that, that the rubrics matter, that they can change uh, how the word is heard, frankly. Hmm. And so it seems like we're okay with that. But when it comes to the rubrics of preaching or, or some of these other areas, then we get suspicious and we, we think we get turned off and it's too evangelical or it's, you know, in this case, too Catholic or whatever. Right. We back off in some, in some capacity or another. Yeah. That's, um, that is a, a very, a very interesting sort of conundrum that we find ourselves in. So, so back to Untener. So basically what he did as I, um, as I kind of get this from the book is for more than a decade, as the Bishop of Saginaw, he would gather together little cohorts of people, um, both um, parish priests and laity and himself. And they would essentially get together for, for a set period of time, maybe two months, three months, something like that, and would 
and would critique one another's sermons. And he would always start with himself. So you had so you had to have uh, a videotape of the actual presentation of the sermon. You know, there were some very practical things that you had to do um, in this process. And uh, and then you and then you would sit down and you talk about both the content, the methodology, what worked, what didn't work. And of course, the um, the perspective of the laity in here uh, was very different from the perspective of the of the priests or pastors that are that are there. But that is kind of where where the what the genesis behind this book was. Yeah, it was really yeah. was really that that practice or that concept. And and uh, I think that's absolutely brilliant. I really do. It's sort of a different take on doing case studies. I kind of learned uh-huh. about case studies when I was doing doxology, and. Um, and and I've really come to appreciate case studies as a way of kind of putting putting flesh and blood, if you will, on the actual practice of our theology. And I know that they can be overdone and misused, but um, uh, but that was that was definitely this is essentially looking at sermons as case studies. Yeah. Now, what do you yeah. what do you think would be? The, have you ever have you ever been a part of a process like this? I haven't. So. No, the, I mean, nothing since we took our homiletics classes in, in seminary where there was some evaluation. There, I've, I've not been through any kind of program where my sermons or my preaching were evaluated by myself and others. Um, I think many of us would resist that. Oh, and, yeah. You know, we'd find it terrifying, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I, it, I think it's pretty regular. I'm just thinking about Winkles for the last few years. It's pretty regular for guys to be really quite nervous at Winkles at preaching, preaching, preaching to their colleagues. And, uh, you know, obviously you're talking about a far, far more um, observant and and at least intentionally critical audience than what you're going to get on a Sunday morning. Um, mm-hmm. But in another way. At least I would hope a far more sympathetic group because yeah, you know, right. nobody understands the challenges of preaching better than preachers. So, uh, so yeah, I think I, I the idea kind of scares me, and and I'm quite certain that that is a big part of what what this uh, demon that I'm going to be doing is going to oh, involve sure. because sure. this is a that's what it is. So, so yeah, so that's 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 kind of where Untener gets a lot of his ideas and concepts and sort of the areas that he goes with is through these um is through these different different cohorts that he uh that he ran and I and I really appreciated that he at least he writes that he always um he always gave one of his sermons as the first one for everyone to critique. Yeah. So he's he's kind of uh, eating his own dog food as it were. Right. And, uh, and, and we never had a homo- We never had a homiletics prof do that. No, I can't remember. Now, I maybe in some way we did and that is that they preach in chapel. Yeah, but I don't think we ever discussed it after. Yeah, exactly. And and, yeah. and honestly, if you're a, you're a if you're a student, there yeah. is an inherent kind of fear Right. At least at that level, where that where the yeah. the instructor kind of truly has some power over you, um, there is an inherent fear of being too critical of your uh, of your instructors. Well, and here we have a bishop 
having the priests in his diocese, I mean, I would think they would be fearful of, of critiquing his sermons in, right. in a similar way. Right. But, but um, overall, I think it's a cool, cool thing. Yeah. So there are, um, there are dangers behind it, I suppose, but, uh, but still a good, maybe even a really good idea to, to, to say, to okay. say, okay, well, let's, let's try and make Winkle something that is, um, practical in the sense of I'm going to try to improve what I do on a weekly basis as a pastor. Maybe maybe Winkle isn't the right context for this. I don't know. Um, Winkles, at least around here, are usually too big. You'd have to you'd have to narrow it down or something something like that. But uh, yeah, so that's that's in many ways the uh, uh, the the genesis behind this book, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so he kind of starts off as I remember it. It's been about two months, two months since I read it. Now, uh, he yeah. starts off with sort of a the beginning, the middle, and the end, and sort of just go, does kind of a quick, you know, six seven pages, very short shotgun blast on each part of the on each main part of the sermon, and uh, and then goes to. Um, and then goes on and sort of backs up and goes a lot a lot deeper at it but even uh, but even at the very start looking at the introduction he uh, he raises a challenge that i have been thinking about for 2 months now and that is um the sermon should flow from the scriptures and the liturgy and should not should not not drop in as if it is a, a a foreign thing into the worshiping congregation into the life of the into the life of the church and and it's just kind of made me wonder how is it that we as as preachers you know i have a sort of liturgy behind my sermons you know i mm-hmm. i have mm-hmm. typically introduced them with nigh unto the exact same words for 20 years and concluded them with nigh unto the exact same words for 20 years. And is that is that actually adding to the sermon itself, or is that just sort of putting a barrier between that and everything else that happened before and after? You know? No, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't think so. I, I think that it's it, you know, it's it's natural for pastors to have sort of um a, a format to how they start their, at least, I mean, amongst Lutheran pastors, um, you know, we begin with an apostolic greeting or something and end with right. some, I mean, I, I always end my sermons very simply, you know, in Jesus name. Yep. Amen. Yep. And, but I've had, you know, I've heard preachers who have, uh, you know, a, a, maybe another kind of apostolic blessing or something at the end. Right. And now the peace of God that passes all right. understanding or something, something right. like that. Yep. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so you're right. So, in what sense is that a natural outflow? Is that a part of the writing process? You know, again, I'm thinking very concretely for myself. Yeah. If I can look in the writing process and I can start off and I always know what the first two and a half sentences are that I'm going to say then I don't have to worry about how to begin this. <laughs> so it can it kind of can prime the pump of the process. But well, isn't isn't there doesn't he have a line in there that you should know exactly what the last 
paragraph yeah. is going to say before you start writing the sermon yep. or before you write your first paragraph. Yeah, I love that. You, you should I do know too. how the sermon is going to end before you start. Right. Because if you don't know how to end, you are going to have no idea how to get there. Yeah, I, I thought that was just so obvious and yet brilliant. And I, yeah. I thought, ah, that's something I can take and, and actually apply to my sermon writing. Right, right. So, so essentially write the conclusion first or some, or if you don't write it out, have the conclusion kind of clear in your head first. Yeah, yeah. And then, uh, and then work out from there. What I end up almost inevitably doing is when I'm just kind of writing and not, when I'm writing and not really thinking about it, but sort of in, in, the, in the normal groove of the sermon writing, it kind of comes down to, okay, here's the end of my sermon. Oh, nuts. I haven't mentioned the sacraments yet. I should probably put something in with that. And then, and then uh, I, I will have some what's almost formulaic come to the Eucharist end. And, and it always seems to me like it is a letdown, at least to me, um, that it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy what kind of what we should be trying to do. That you're kind of stepping out of the preaching of the text and coming back to your format. Right. Well, coming back to the format or coming back to the context in which I'm preaching it. Oh, yeah. yeah this, is, yeah. this is actually in the context of the Eucharist. We're just about to have the Eucharist. Right, right. And, you know, we began with the with the baptismal invocation. I mean, that is for Lutherans on, in the divine service, pretty much always the context in which we're preaching. And so if that isn't a part of the if that is, if we don't understand that as a part of the text and the preaching of the text, then I'm not sure if we've done our work in in kind of understanding what the context is. Yeah, I've always thought, especially since I served um, my, the, my church in Elmhurst, Illinois, which had weekly communion or communion at every service, um, you know, I always intentionally wrote my sermon as this is to prepare the person for coming to the altar. Right. Even if I even if I didn't explicitly mention the sacrament of the altar, it was it was the it was the subtext for sure. Right. Right. At least intentional, my intention. Yeah, I'm, you know, uh, you know one of the, one of the other things that he said in here that I've I've been able to apply, and it's, you know, I'm just kind of randomly picking a few of the insights and yep. and throwing them out. The, so he, you know, he said something in one of the chapters about how many preachers diddle doddle with their introduction. They just kind of slowly kind of get into it. And, and what I remember from reading, it's been a couple months since I read this as well, yep. um, is, you know, is simply get to the point sooner. Get to the point a lot sooner and, and don't, don't give out this long. And I'm prone to do that. I'm prone to give, you know, an, an introductory story or some kind of anecdote yep. that, that I believe helps. But, right. I, but I think in a way, um, you know, it may be kind of, is distracting because then by the time I get to my point, they've, I've lost some attention. Right. And, and don't, don't make your introduction better than the point. <laughs> <laughs> right. Which is, right. Which right. is very easy to do. If you have, and I've fallen into this trap, you come up with, you're looking at the text and you come, you come up with a great illustration for the text. Mm -hmm. And, and while I am not in general, a huge uh, storyteller, or, you know, kind of rabbit trail follower, 
when it comes to sermons. Certainly do them, have them. But um, but if if you get to the point where you have written this brilliant introduction and then you got nothing else to say, guess right. what? They're only going to remember the introduction. So it better be good. <laughs> well, Untner says that you you – you have their attention right at the beginning, right. you know, that that's at the moment when you have their attention best at the very, at the very beginning. And if you kind of just sort of meander to a point that's it's counterproductive. And I always think of David, David scare our, our beloved professor from seminary who was well known for saying things like get to the point get in personal point. conversations. Yep, <laughs> you know, when exactly. Like, talking to him and uh, get to the point. I don't have time and, for your rambling here. Get on. Right. With it. Get, oh. get to the point. But that's so true. I mean, it's just simply, it's simply a good piece of advice. Get to the point faster. Don't build, you know, we don't have to build up to things so much. Um, the liturgy is the build up. Then just then you know get to your point. Get get there sooner. Right, right. I have um I have been trying, sometimes successfully in these uh, uh, in in sermons of late, to get the point out almost immediately in the sermon. You know, it, the point of this sermon is uh, mm-hmm. understanding the gift of uh, our Lord, our Lord's presence with us in prayer. Mm-hmm. And then move on, but just right. so that so that it can be extremely clear on what is uh, what is at stake and sort of what what you're going to be talking about. Um, so it's hard. Do you, do you actually say that the point of this sermon is sometimes? Sometimes, yeah, <laughs> yeah not always. That. Again, I'm right, trying. Right. I'm, I'm obviously trying not to be formulaic uh, sure. about it, but that is uh, and, and part of that has to do with one. You know, I've like most Lutheran pastors do the um, uh, do the perennial sermon studies with my confirmands, and one of the questions that I have always asked on that on the sermon study form is, "What was the point of the sermon?" Mm-hmm. Good, and and that's actually been extremely helpful to me because if they can't tell me what the point of the sermon was. Either that meant that they weren't there, they weren't listening, or it meant that either there wasn't a point or I did a lousy job of communicating it. Sometimes we're not clear. And that's yeah. what I get out of this book is just the importance of clarity, yeah. of just yeah. being being clear and not being beating around the bush, not being overly elaborate, even if the elaborations are brilliant. Um, sometimes that brilliance is lost. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. And in fact, there is a, um, a, a quote on, on, uh, on editing on page 55 in the book. He's got a, uh, he's got a little section on, on editing that is, uh, that's quite brilliant. He actually, uh, quotes Ernest Hemingway from his book, Death in the Afternoon. I'll read it here. This is one of Hemingway's characters is actually saying this, but makes sense. No matter how good a phrase or a simile he may have, if he puts it in where it is not absolutely necessary and irreplaceable, he is spoiling his work for egotism. Prose is architecture, not interior decoration, and the Baroque is over. Ah, wow. Isn't that just awesome? Yeah, yeah. The Baroque is over, dude. The Baroque is over, yeah. <laughs> right. and, and, and that is absolutely true when it comes to, um, to preaching today 
You know, we've mm-hmm. we've talked multiple times about the danger of um the the danger of or the difficulty with lack of attention span for people, both ourselves and our listeners. And mm-hmm. so if you end up going kind of, kind of down a total rabbit hole of um of a, a rabbit hole where you don't even know what the connection is to the point, you can be quite sure that your listeners won't either. So, yeah, I yeah, yeah I found yeah. this section on editing especially uh, especially useful. Although the section on editing works with a presumption that I find very uh, troubling. And the presumption is, is that you have a first draft of the sermon done early in the week. <laughs> right, right. And, um, and I have gone back and forth on that. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's some, you know, sometimes it's there, sometimes not. But um, I would say by and large, my sermons are finished probably on Friday. I, I, I would guess that 80% of my sermons are done on Friday and the editing remains for the weekend and, you know, whatever editing there may be. Um, and I have always wanted to get to the point where the first draft is done on Wednesday and I've never gotten there or, you know, it is a total fluke if I have a sermon written by Wednesday. It doesn't normally happen, but that that work of editing is uh it can only happen if you're actually working ahead which is real yeah and and sometimes like 24 hours in between or at least a night of sleep in between right right. some break Mm -hmm. is necessary it really is Mm -hmm. yep i agree good i agree well this is um i i think this is good and not surprising we have uh uh, we have barely scratched the surface on this book, but um, but we are uh, starting to run into our time push here. Um, maybe we can do this again. I think that there is enough sure. in this that we should that we could spend another uh, another session on it. These are a few, just a few ideas along the way that uh, uh, that I thought were uh, were quite quite worth our highlighting. Uh, if our dear listeners have any questions or suggestions or comments on either sermon preparation, sermon writing, sermon delivering, uh, send them our way. Feedback at the crux of the matter.net. You can also find the show notes or you could leave a comment uh, on the show notes too. Uh, you can find those at the crux of the matter.net slash podcast slash 56. And we would uh, love to have some of your, uh, some of your thoughts on this process as well. So we will, um, well, let's just make an executive decision here, Scott, and say we're going to do this again next week. Is that all right? Sounds with you? great. All yeah, right. I'm with let's, you. Uh, let's plan on that. That'd be awesome. So, Scott, what's uh, what's bringing you joy this week? Pray tell. Well, um, I don't know if uh, if you're aware of this, but I am an obsessive. Whenever I read, I'm an obsessive underliner. Do you do that? Do you highlight or do you? I think I was aware of that. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. Do you, but do you do that ever? Do you? Oh, yeah. Do you underline yeah, I, when you I, read? I am a, um, an obsessive, I will say, note taker in reading. It okay. may be highlighting. Okay. It may be underlining. It may be, you know, margin notes or or uh, something else. I've actually gone a different direction on how to do that lately. But uh, so, so you are the well, underliner. Uh, 
I'm, I'm an underliner. Well, sometimes I write margin notes too, but, but primarily I underline. I don't use highlighters. And so lately I've been on the quest for the perfect pencil for <laughs> underlining. Okay. Okay. And I've come up with two um, that, I, that I'm a huge fan of right now. Okay. One of them is a wood case pencil. It's an actual pencil, um, you know, made of wood. Bright. And it's 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 the Palomino Blackwing six oh two. Okay, the Palomino yep. Blackwing six oh two. It's it, there's something I, I don't know what the uh, lead softness is or hardness is, but I like it. it. Gives me a nice dark line. It's a it's a it's a beautiful pencil. It's got a nice eraser on the end. Doesn't roll away. It's got a flat eraser. Um, it just has a very good dark. I like dark dark lines. Yeah, and then yeah. And I found a mechanical pencil and it's a clutch pencil. I don't know if the, the, it, it's, it's, um, it's not an, it doesn't self advance the lead. You have to release the lead and, and it slips out a little bit every time. Gotcha. It's got a little, little clutch on there, but it's got, it's, it's a, it's a Statler, um, pencil and, um, it, it has a two millimeter lead and I like the four B lead because it's dark. Mm-hmm. But not so dark as to be soft, too soft, where the lead will break all the time. Right. It's almost four B is almost like artists, you know, quality. Right. And right. so, just lately, I have I have been using pencils in them very much, and so that's what I decided I would bring to you today. Wow! And of course, you, uh, as you know, you're uh, talking my language here. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. those are fun things. Uh, the uh-huh. Palomino six hundred two. Ironically enough, I am pretty sure is the pencil that Ernest Hemingway wrote with. Yeah, a lot of am artists, I right on that? I think you are. A lot of famous writers yeah. were big, have been big fans yeah. of the Palomino. Pal- Palomino is kind of one of the historic uh, writing utensil ones, especially from the early mid twentieth century. Um, and uh, yeah, that's a that's a lot a lot of fun. Uh, so yeah, great, great pick. I don't think I've ever used the Stadler before. You'll have to uh, uh, send me a link to that, and you'll probably cost me to spend some money here along the way. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, yeah. I have, um, yeah, probably my uh, my two the two pencils that two mechanical pencils that I use the most are um, are a uh, Rotring six hundred, which is a point five millimeter pencil, and a um, uh, and a uh, a uh, Kurotoga, which is obviously a Japanese pencil, which has the same uh, similar. I'm pretty sure I have had that as a pick at some point or another here. Nice thing about that one is that when it, when it advances the lead, you know, it's a clicker on the end. And yet mm-hmm. when it advances the lead, um, it turns the lead slightly so that there is so it doesn't kind of get a sharp point on one end. It, so you're evenly kind of wearing down the lead. Those are great. Great pencils and uh, excellent picks. Um, my pick is uh, very peculiar in a totally different way. And that is, my pick is a book. That's not peculiar. Um, but um, the title of the book is The 10-Day Detox by mm-hmm. Mark Hyman, H-Y-M-A-N. Uh, I think, Scott, that I have been on every diet that has ever been created at some point or another in my life. And, uh, and this is, this is not precisely a diet. It's, it's really a detox program. So for 10 days, here's the super short version. 10 days, you, you cut out, uh, sugars, carbohydrates, alcohol, uh, gluten, 
And so basically anything that you like to eat, you probably can't eat mm-hmm. it um, unless you uh. really like lean chicken and kale um, and a few <laughs> and a few other few other things. I mean, I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit, obviously. But uh, so I'm four days into this 10 uh, day detox right now. And it is really interesting because it has a lot of uh, uh, a lot of things that um, that are not typically included in this sort of thing, like um, making a point to go to bed and to get up at the same time, taking a bath with Epsom salts in a super hot bath every night, which mm. I've never, mm, ever, yeah. ever done, but yeah. really, really relaxes you and gets you ready to uh, to go to sleep. Um, uh, a lot of other a lot of things like that i think it probably ends up i'm going to guess at around the 15 to 1700 calories a day range so which is not actually that much less than i would typically eat um in terms of calories but in four days i've lost 10 pounds so yeah that's great i kind of like that and uh, oh the other thing which is which is probably the hardest part for me is no caffeine um Mm. no artificial anything so, uh, so that's been, that's what about cigars defining here? Yeah. No cigars, no, uh, <laughs> which, you know, honestly, I don't, uh, I don't do much anymore anyways, but, uh, uh, but yeah, that has been a really interesting process. And, uh, like many, if not most Lutheran pastors, I'm, uh, typically overweight and, uh, have struggled with that. And also kind of with how to, how to find balance in that with my uh, daily work and family schedule. So I am uh, in a very peculiar way enjoying that right now. And uh, so that's my pick. Yeah, good. Yeah. Any, anything for making us healthy. Yeah, it's a good thing. It's a very good thing. So uh, anything else for our listeners, my friend? No, thanks for listening, y'all. All righty. And on that uh, fine note, we will uh, see you next week. Goodbye.